Hi everyone, I'm Jennifer, the host of Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai, where we're going to talk about the Japanese concept of Ikigai or living a life of purpose. Here you're going to hear inspirational stories from all different types of people who are finding their own life of purpose. You're going to hear about how they found their Ikigai and what they do every day to live an integrated life. So without further ado, let's dive right in. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai, wherever you are listening to this episode from in this wonderful world that we live in. So I'm very excited to welcome our guest today, Ryan McAvoy. This has been the most rescheduled <laughs> interview ever for various reasons. So thank you so much for your patience and for Coming back after you, you've just had a surgery, you've been to Mongolia, you've been filming. So many things are going on. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's actually Mongolia in the background. You can oh, see beautiful. When, for on YouTube, when this finally comes out on YouTube, you'll be able to see this. But there's a lovely... I stayed in the tents behind there. Oh, wow. Maybe oh, we... Bluest, clearest skies you've ever seen. Cows and horses just come up randomly during the night and just come and say hello to you quiet not a sound not a city sound you know it's a lot of time to think about ikigai perfect nice <laughs> nice segue into it <laughs> right. so did you get a bit of like culture shock then when you arrived back in tokyo uh it's all you know well i mean for us who have been here a long time in tokyo there's always that feeling when you step in, onto the carpets at narita when you first step off the plane you're like ah oh, ah oh, peace i'm back yeah and wherever, wherever the world takes you it's always great to go and see the world, but you know, there's nothing more peaceful than the orderly fashion that everything ticks like a clock in Japan, you know? Yeah. Did, did, for me, that's what it is. Yeah. I was just thinking of that. When was the moment for me when I started to pay more attention to the Okaidi Nasai, like the welcome home rather than the right, welcome right, to right. Japan? Right. And there is there's something like, I don't fly into Hanado that often, but the, yeah, like the smell of Narita Airport or it's like lack of smell. Yeah. Yeah. And just everything moves in orderly fashion. Yeah. Know? And so, because it, well, Mongolia is still a developing nation. Mm. So the, the roads are all still really bad. There's potholes everywhere. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a little bit like China where people are just pushing here and there. And that's okay. I can take it. But I was there for two weeks. And you know, when your people are pushing and yelling and you got to fight for yourselves. And when you go to the market, you know, you're told, what's your wallet? If a group circles you, you know give them your things and that kind of thing it's um it's and it's a beautiful beautiful country but there are a lot of dangers to in the main cities and it was just nice to get back and not have to worry about any of that you know just mm. back in peace yes yes but we're not here on the ikigai with jennifer shinkai podcast to romanticize japan right, actually right. far from it and um, that's one of the wonderful uh, things about how this podcast and our guests approach Ikigai and later on we're going to talk about Ryan's very powerful film The Ones Left Behind which is about the plight of single mothers in Japan. I was lucky enough to watch it when you had like an early was it a kickstarter or some kind of crowdfunding right, right. campaign so we'll we'll get into that because Japan whilst many things work for many people there is this hidden uh, undercurrent of poverty of suffering um yeah and not everyone is waking up thinking leaping out of bed thinking about their ikigai right exactly 
Yeah, so we'll 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 get into that in a moment. But th this is the reason uh, why I invited Ryan onto the podcast because I was so interested and moved by this film, and thinking, what can I do with my tiny platform to help share this story and share this content? And then when we had a briefing chat to get to know each other and find out. Um, little bit about your life there's all these amazing stories of recreation of finding like different sources of ikigai so we're gonna jump into your life story for the maybe the first half of our conversation and the second half we'll we'll talk more about the um the ones left behind and then what's coming next as well so so tell, maybe you could do like kind of potted a potted history of uh your various pivots and perhaps focusing on the two sources as you described it of your ikigai around martial arts and the camera right everything started on one day in 1989 i was at a school camp and for some stupid reason i was eight years old and i went up to a 12 year old boy who was much larger than me and um I i'm gonna say that he was borderline obese and i was very very skinny little kid and stupid me said hey you're fat and he didn't even look twice. I mean, that was, it's a silly thing to do, but you know, you're an eight year old boy. Mm. And he just turned around and he punched me. And my eyes just went boom. My father's from the north of England and he grew up, he was born in 1942. So he didn't see his father for the first two years of his life. And he grew up in very rough, hard times where, you know, uh, men don't show emotions. Mm. Um, you fight to survive. They were living on rations. Yeah. It was a really tough, tough time. And, that whole generation, I think, are a generation of men who will get onto this a little bit later, but don't don't really know how to to show emotions. And his first thing when he looked at my eye, he just said, "Did you fight him back?" With zero emotion, like you know, a lot of people would probably be like, "Oh, hey, what's you know?" And they'd, they'd be like, "Are you okay, yeah, boy? Are you okay, what happened, yeah. boy? Nothing." Did you fight him back? I said, "No, Dad. He was bigger than me. He's right. He'll put you in martial arts." That was it. A year later, this is just a little offshoot of a thing, but I was uh, one of the last ones to get the wooden bamboo cane in my primary school. Not not for anything bad, just doing silly things what little boys do. And I got the cane on my hand, and I, I spent all weekend holding it in, holding it in, holding it in. Finally, on the Monday, I burst out into tears. I said, Dad, I got the cane. And he said, did you cry in front of the principal? I said, yes. And he goes, silly boy. Mm. and walked off that's the kind of man that, that he was very 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 rough tough in his where, where was he from in the north i'm from near manchester so i'm in uh, he's a bit farther north he's um he spent a lot of time in, in in liverpool when he was okay when he joined the merchant navy so he was based there for about four years but he's originally from the lake district uh, below okay. it in a tiny right. little town in called workington in mm. cumbria right known for uh rugby league and and the yeah. coal mines mm. Not as beautiful as the, as the Lake District, but it's near. It is near the Lake District. Right. But he immigrated to Australia in the seventies. He was a ten pound pom. Wow. Which was a what Australians call a pommy. Yeah. A, a prisoner of Mother England, <laughs> and a ten pound ticket means that you know, like you go to Australia, and you don't come back. Right. And that that's like what he that did. Mass immigration, yeah. Right. And he never went back. Mm. Well, so he enrolled me in martial arts, and he was also doing Aikido at the time, which is a Japanese martial art. I I started out in Taekwondo and I got up to a uh, second degree and I was actually in the Australian junior Taekwondo national team in mm. the national training team for Taekwondo by the age of 12. Wow. Taekwondo was, it is an Olympic sport now at the time it wasn't, mm. 
and they were planning to apply as an Olympic sport. And we were like the generation after once it had been accepted. We were supposed to be, if that makes any sense. I was only 12. So that generation that was going to be in the Olympics, we were the ones behind them. Right. Right. So um, as soon as he found out that I had been getting all these accolades uh, in Taekwondo, I got very high and I got very good very quickly, mostly because he would stand from the second floor window and I had a punching bag outside and he would stand there with his arms crossed and look out the window. And every day after school, uh, five to six days a week, he would force me to, when I didn't have training in the dojo, I mean, force me to hit and kick this bag. I was scared. Not if I didn't do it, what he'd say to me. And a lot of times he just put his head out there and he just makes sure I'm doing what I'm doing. That was from the very early days, right? So mm. that's how I got good so quickly because I was kind of like uh, old-fashioned Japanese training, I suppose. <laughs> you know, like And the Japanese martial arts and also that most of their sport is they rely on repetition after repetition after repetition. Not just in martial arts, but anything really here yeah. in Japan. I get repetition. It's repetition. Yeah. Um, that's just the way they do things. Good training, repetition over good training at times. Mm. But anyway, I was doing a lot of this stuff and as soon as I got to this high level and it was announced that I'd been accepted to this junior team, we went to this big, massive, big oval near my house where all the Australian team members gathered. And the ones that were trying to get into the Olympic team were separated from us kids that were the kind of future. And he didn't like it for whatever reason. He didn't like it. And uh, because, you know, a lot of the Taekwondo guys, they were kind of like ponce around with right. their black belts and their big like logos on their thing. And he thought that was this the anti-martial art like, mm. that's not what martial arts is about so he yanked me out of there and he, and he he put me into karate and that was my probably my first step on the path of coming to japan was being put in karate as a 13 year old but i had just come from taekwondo where i was a champion junior champion so i was going in there like kicking butt in the karate dojo yeah um and he was still a real nazi kind of hitless kind of towards me and my training but you know i was starting to enter high school around this time mm. and you, you when you join high school you know you you lose interest in things outside you start having interest in girls and you start want to hang out with your friends more and uh martial arts was the furthest thing from my mind so from you know so i started at 13 in high school right so by 16 i was still doing martial arts but i just hated it yeah. and i was just begging with my mom i don't want to do it i don't want to do it and she was so scared of my dad that she couldn't bring it up to him that he wants to quit. I couldn't bring it up that I wanted to quit. But finally, I just said, Dad, I'm not doing this anymore. And he got so angry. He never talked to me for a year. Wow. I remember. Yeah, never talked to me for a year. Just just grunts and the odd dinner thing. Never, never spoke to me. Did his very best to make me feel like a real piece of dirt. Because that might have been what probably the life that he wanted. Right. Maybe. I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I mean, he was doing martial arts, but he came across martial arts very late in his life, right. like in his mid 40s, uh, late 40s. Right. We basically started martial arts around the same period. Mm. So sort of living vicariously through you, really? but, but not able to kind of communicate his pride or his admiration or support. It was never heard once. Yeah. Uh, you did great, mate. Really proud of you. Never mm. once, ever. But but now when I'm older, I realize that's that's his generation. Mm. You know, that's that generation of men, especially Northern Englishmen. I mean, 
as far as I can tell, at least talking to people that yeah. the most of them are like that. And it's not that they don't love you. They show they that they love you in other ways. Yeah. Right. And so I, I see that now, you know, having left home a long time ago and thinking back about, you know, life and what took me to where I am now. And it's like, okay, he probably was very, very proud, mm. but he wasn't able to show it. And um, that's okay. That's about the time it, it didn't, it didn't make any sense to me, but so he didn't talk to me for a year. And, um, and then I was, I don't know if you remember the old ICQ chat. You remember this was the very first ever no, chat. But go it on. Way before, yeah. It was way before um, <laughs> MSN, MSN Messenger. Right. It was in 1999 and I just graduated high school. Remember, I've been out of martial arts for about two years and playing like basketball and, you know, football and rugby and stuff. And But I'd been in the dojo all my life. Oh, by the way, sorry, I've got to go back a little bit to talk about <laughs> the campus because they're, it's all connected. When I was 12, he bought a big Sony TV camera, which was total overkill. We, we, we could have had a little handy cam. It would have been totally yeah, fine. But for whatever massive... reason, he bought a massive, big, on-your-shoulder, at the time, it probably cost about $5,000, massive, big TV camera, and said, I want you to film my martial arts classes for me. Right Now, he didn't know how to use a camera. I mean, he I guess he looked it up a little bit, and I certainly didn't know how to use a camera, but we kind of had to stumble across it, and I ended up, filming a lot of his martial arts classes mm. with this big TV camera. And then he would go along and he'd film all my, uh, you know, my kumite, my fighting in karate. So we've always both had cameras in our hands. He ended up giving up. He didn't take it past that. But for me, they've always been connected, you know. Mm. And when I get onto the wrestling a little bit later, how it stayed connected, you have to remind me that because I've been filming and fighting like the, all the whole time together. Filming and fighting. Yeah. Um, so back to this ICQ thing, and and I come across this because you know it was a random chat thing, and I I come across this this girl, and I said I know you. It was my sensei's daughter from karate, and I'd quit karate two years earlier, mm. and I'd been totally in love with her for three years, <laughs> right? From thirteen to sixteen, that was the sensei's daughter. That was his, you know, he had three daughters, but she was the most beautiful. I'd been totally in love, but of course she was not. wasn't interested in me, right? But I, I thought to myself, oh, my God, it's a sign, you know, and how stupid. But, you know, you're, I was only 17 or something, 18. And so I messaged her. I said, hello. She she kind of vaguely remembered me. She said, why don't you come down to the dojo? I said, yeah, okay, all right, I'll go to it. I had no intention of ever doing martial arts again. I was telling myself that, but there was something is eating me away inside that mm. I'd been away for two years and I'd grown up on the tatami, on the, the mats, right? I'd grown up in dojos yeah. and it felt weird not to be in a dojo. And so I went back there just to say hi to her and maybe try, you know, I'm 18 years old, you know, maybe maybe try and score a date, you know. Um, and her mother, of course, they knew me because I'd been there since I was 13. I wanted, <laughs> little, I was a little, little, little kid. kid. I was still little at the time. Huh? <laughs> um, and she said, Ryan, wow, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I've just come to, to watch class and, you know, come say hi to Bianca, her name was. Oh, great. And then the class finished. I said, why don't you come in the office? Bianca had disappeared, right? Um, And within 10 minutes, the mother had signed me up for a one-year one pay-by-card contract to go back to karate. I had no intention. What a cunning sales technique. Yes, it was. I didn't, it was that Bait wasn't and the switch. Plan. <laughs> Bait and switch. <laughs> Bait and switch. That wasn't, wasn't your the, plan. No, it whatever it wasn't my plan. But I said, whatever, all right, I've, I've, I've done it now. I'll give it a go. I've I've signed up. And there was a little bit inside me that wanted to make 
my dad proud of me. And I wanted to somehow tell him, hey, you know what? I went back when I mm -hmm. went back. It was so hard to talk to him. I eventually told him, hey, I went back. And he just went, eh, nothing, mm -hmm. zero emotion. But he knew I was doing it. I, I assumed that he probably felt something. But because we'd always go in the class together. Right. So I quit, right? He'd drop me off. And then, or someone else would drop me off and he'd come back for the last 30 minutes and he'd watch the class and we'd go home together. That was his way, I guess, of bonding with me. So mm. I guess it really broke his heart when I said, sorry, dad, I'm out. Mm. Um, but, you know, you got to let your kid do what he wants to do. And I, I didn't want to do martial arts when I was 16. I wanted to go to parties and, you know, do what all the other kids are doing. Yeah, of course. He wouldn't let that. He, he That was all banned. You know, it was martial arts, martial arts, martial arts. And so within three months, of rejoining the dojo, I became Queensland state karate champion with basically zero training with three months, nothing. I hadn't touched it. So much natural talent and all it's, this repetition as well, right? It's, it's all that. It's not because I, I don't know. I don't know about natural talent. I think only 1% of us really have that mm. natural God given talent. I think it was all the, you know, doing it from seven years old yeah. and just being drilled and drilled and drilled and drilled over and over again. It's, it's like riding a bicycle. And so in less than three months, I'm standing on a, a podium with two black belts beside me. And my sensei had promoted me from white belt to orange so that it didn't look weird that I had a white belt on on the, po on the podium. Right? It's legendary, though. It, it would have been, been fantastic. Yeah. I, and I, I totally smashed them all. But, but because we're all the same, it was I was under 65 kilograms. Mm. That's how small I was, right? In, in, the, in the lightest and skinniest of the smallest of groups. So I'm standing there and then champion... And around the same time, my friend was here in Japan as an exchange student. And we used to meet once a week. Again, this is long before any, any of the messaging apps or anything like that. We used to meet once a week and we used to play um, chess online, right? So a bit of a, we're a bit of geeks as well. Yahoo Chess. And then we had a time every, every Wednesday that we'd meet. I was a first year IT student at the time, which I absolutely, absolutely hated. And randomly, he just said to me, you should come to Japan. I probably told him about the karate, I guess. Yeah. And, um, you know, we had talked about it because he's a high school friend. We had talked about it during high school. Yeah, I'm going to go to Japan one day. And I remember telling my mom, I'm going to go to Japan one day, mom. And she just laughed and said, yeah, okay, mate, whatever. <laughs> kind of thing. But he said to me randomly in, two, in the end of 2000, you should come to Japan. And I said, okay, yeah, whatever. You lend me the money. I'll come. And he goes, well, as long as you pay me back. I thought, oh. I said, well, how am I going to pay you back? And he said, well, we can probably get you work here. And three days later, he put the money in my bank and I bought a ticket and I flew here and he actually did help me get a, a job over those uh, two and a half months. At the time, it was still cash in hand teaching English. Yeah. And he, could yeah. do it. They didn't, he didn't need a visa to do that. right? And I was teaching all the time for less than 2,000 yen an hour, but it didn't bother me. I was in Japan and I ended up just being able to pay back the airfare and I owed him a little bit and we, we squared that later but from there I just fell in love with Japan it was an eight weeks and I said to my teacher my karate teacher I'm coming to Japan mm. I'd like to do some karate here he gave me the, the dojo address of of his sensei That's and I yeah. went there and I did a little bit of training but truth be told I discovered the other important dojo which is the, Rop the Roppongi dojo <laughs> Of, of, a well-known nightlife district. A well-known nightlife, nightlife district. And I at touched town. Old, used to have right on the bridge. I don't know, but I might have made that bridge sign up. Anyway, nineteen years old, you're in Rapongi. Go. <laughs> nineteen years old, Rapongi just 
someone who illegal you know, underage drinking then yes yes totally <laughs> yes. Well, right, off, 19, 20. let's say you were 20 <laughs> no yeah uh no yeah sorry 19 <laughs> 19. 19 criminal yeah. yes yes but no one ever checked ids in, in yeah. those days anyway so that's how young i was i i do actually remember now having to say oh no sorry i don't have my id on me you know or using someone else's id you know that kind of stuff so you're 19 in Rapongi. let's jump ahead a little bit already you've had these several different shifts pivots we've got fighting and filming right and um the, the next thing that i kind of know about you is that you became a pro wrestler and i know that that probably didn't happen overnight because you became right. a pro wrestler at 30 yes um which as you said is maybe what seven seven years too late yeah, most most people probably decide to do that in their early 20s but for me ever since i'd been a kid doing the martial arts I'd always been stuck in front of TV screens, just staring at the martial arts film stars. Don mm. Claude Van Damme, okay. you know, Steven Seagal. I grew up in the 80s, remember, where right. they were everything. So doing martial arts, using the camera in the dojo, and then seeing these guys is that I only ever had stars in my eyes to be, it was only two things I ever wanted to be in life. That was a, 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 martial, a martial arts action star, or at the same time, a, a pro wrestler. And the reason because of this is because people that portray those characters are all larger than life people, right? right? And, and and that's that's their whole aim is to capture young boys' attention. And that, that's why they're larger than life, especially the wrestling, because they want us to be, how, how can I say it? They, they want to be the people that we strive to be, that we will not strive, but, well, oh my God, I'd love to be like that guy. Right, so like aspirational and a role model and yeah. someone right? who's looked so, up to. So I really wanted to be either one of those. Right. I actually, I tried the to be the action star first. So what happened there was, um, I wrote a short film and I asked I a friend at the time was an American. I said, I've got this short film. Can can you direct it? I want to star in it. I had zero acting experience, zero. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, zero producing experience. Never touched apart from that stuff in the dojo. I never touched mm. a camera outside on the street. Never been able to get a film set going. Anyway, we shot the first day. It went okay, but this guy got kicked out of Japan. He overstayed oh. his visa, right? He's out. He was gone after one day of shooting. We had planned about 10 days of shooting. And he said, sorry, here's the project. And so I became a director slash producer right there on the spot. And the star, right? You and were... the star. And I had found a, another kid online at the time. It was this website called Mixie, which was far yeah. more popular back in the day than Facebook ever was. Facebook didn't take off here in Japan until about 2011, right? It was about four years before mm. the rest of the world. Everyone used Mixi. So I was in these community groups and I found the people that would give me their cars to use in the film and found actors to be in the film all for free. And I had found this cameraman with a camera. So me and this kid with no experience, we made this seven minute short film. It's still on YouTube. Oh my goodness. Right. It's still there. And uh, I was about 27, desperate to be a Hollywood star. And um, basically afterwards, I kind of realized... I had this moment where I just realized, you know what? I really suck at this acting thing. You know what? And I had so much more fun behind the camera. Wow. And so I'll get onto the wrestling in a second because it's connected. But I gave up on the spot right there and then after that first film. And I said, I am, I'm done with this acting thing. I realized my limitations. You know, if you want to be good at something, it's like, it's like I was used to it in the martial arts. You got to go repetition over and over mm. again. You got to go, you got to do it. You got to do it. And I thought, I, I don't have the, I don't have it to 
to go to acting class and to try and become a good actor. It's just, I don't want to do that. Right. I'd rather learn how to be a good cameraman and a good director. Right. So you, right? so you so knew I'd, very I'd, quickly that like, very straight away. Right. I'd always, I'm... known. I was known from the very beginning since I can ever remember the earliest memories of being four years old, standing in front of those screens, watching those movies, thinking, I want to be in the movies. Yeah. When you see the wrestlers come, I want to be a wrestler. So I never gave up the wrestling dream, but I was pivoting towards the camera stuff. And that yeah. to this day, I'm still doing. Yeah. But so, you know, it's like when I had quit karate, I had felt empty for those two years. I felt something missing. That's why I ended up going back to the dojo. I may have subconsciously used Bianca as an excuse, but I subconsciously <laughs> probably wanted to go back to the dojo. So I'm doing this, like all this filming stuff, but subconsciously I still wanted to be in front of a camera somehow. Mm. You know? And so I started searching for ways to get into pro wrestling because here in Japan, it's a bit different to American pro wrestling. It's still treated somewhat as a real fight, even though it's scripted just like the American stuff. The Japanese fans, they also treat it like a real tatakai, not so much as a fight fight, but a real coming together of two two right. cl- clashes, right? Two people yeah, clash. clash of titans. Yeah. Right. So I, I I had watched some Japanese pro wrestling, and to be honest, I, I, you know, I thought uh, it's, it's not what I grew up watching, you know, but it's basically just two guys fighting. But what, what I was fortunate is I had all that martial arts background. Right. And so I'd been doing, uh, you know, martial arts, trying to get into this wrestling world, which was impossible to get into. Absolutely impossible. Wherever I turned, no, no, you're too small, too short. No, no, no. And then one of my friends, um, rest in peace, he actually passed away very early at the age of 39 from a sudden heart attack. He was a champion, a heavyweight kickboxer. And I met him here and he was doing kickboxing in a place in Daikanyama. And he said to me, look, I know you want to be a wrestler and I know you're not happy that, you know, you're being rejected at some of these places. Why don't you come to kickboxing? Because in Japan, I'll never forget his words. And they're so prophetic. In Japan, kickboxers jump over the MMA. MMA guys jump over the pro wrestling. Pro wrestlers jump over the MMA. It's all mixed. He said, mm. just, just get in. Come to my dojo and you never know. I think he was just saying that to recruit me. Right? Because <laughs> he didn't he have wanted... a Bianca, but he had <laughs> he had you could kind of cross cross streams into yes another I, he he had been trying to get other foreigners into the dojo because he was the only one right. and he was he was he loved the dojo so much that he was trying to help them with the business mm. it was a it was a full on purebred full of champions Japanese kickboxing gym like mm. they were all gladiators right um, so his, so his advice was just just get in any door and then work it from there because you've tried yeah you've tried to get in the traditional route but you're going to have to go a little bit of a detour but then it will happen right right um you never know which door will open you know kind of Mm. thing i always that's always my my thing in life is you never know which door is open you you know you just got to (laughs) knock a lot of doors it sounds like yeah but the, the the most random thing happened was that well, I always believe that, you know, it, it's life is about building up skills, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always tell everybody now, especially young people, I'm going to get back to this. So this is kind of a bit of an offshoot of, but I'm going to get back to to the how I became a wrestler. It's directly connected to this. I always tell people when I first come to Japan, I had zero skills. I had nothing. I had no skills. And thanks to Japan, I have an array of skills right now that mm-hmm. I probably couldn't have got elsewhere. I probably couldn't have because, I, I, you know, 
if you like i said if you knock on a door here in japan someone will probably open it for you and oh doors are you know like it's just the way it is here and uh, so i tell a lot of people that okay like you know where do you want to be in life what skills do you need to get there go out and get those skills right it's going to take a while but you got to get skills so one of the skills that i needed was i needed combat skills mm. fighting skills to use that avenue to get into pro wrestling and I started doing, I was doing it. I got pretty good, actually. You know, I had the karate background. I'd been doing Aikido for a long time. Um, again, there was a tiny little blank period where like, Rapongi was the place to be, you know. But I've always been like a magnet drawn back to, you know, to the dojo. And then, the, you know, two years in, I'm trying to get a, uh, an amateur fight. And to be an amateur is one step below pro. So to get, even to get an amateur fight means you're probably going to turn pro. And to be on that course, you have to fight a professional. I was ripped to shreds. I've been training so hard, dieting hard. And I fought the current middleweight champion in like a mini fight in um in the gym. And, you know, he kind of touched me up pretty badly. Um, but he was a champion. I, I was still amateur level. And, you know, I I, I saw went black for a little, I saw black and he knocked me out for a little bit. But that's okay. That's That's what it's about. That's fine. And there was like a woman there because it was in the dojo, right? And anyway she she was looking at me a little bit and she didn't say anything like a week later she introduced herself and she uh she said oh, i i saw the fight she said you, you you know you got some really good spirit by the way i'm a fortune teller and i thought oh here we go you know like <laughs> okay, all right um well i'm not paying i oh, thought I'm, well, yeah i was gonna how much is this gonna cost me yeah yeah and she said do you want me to do your your tarot cards and i'll, I'll get my cards out we'll do them right here in the dojo right and i said okay sure so in the middle of the dojo on the table there she puts out all these tarot cards and she starts checking the palms of my hands. Oh, does all the tarots. She says, you're, you, you have a really good spirit, but your, your life path is not, you're not on the path that you're supposed to be along those lines. You know, we did it all in Japanese, yeah. something, something similar to that effect. What do you want to be? And I said, you know, and I, I'd, I'd been pushing hard with the camera stuff, but I'd always thought, well, if I'm going to get help from somebody, I could probably do this camera stuff on my own. Cause I'm, I got a lot of friends. I'm, I said, why don't I just say something like wrestling? See what she says kind of thing. It was kind of just a half, you know. I said, well, I'd love to be a pro wrestler. And she said, what, really? Well, I know, I know this guy. I know this guy and I know this guy. She said, well, here you go. <laughs> just like that. And I, what I, would have I, happened I, if you'd said, I want to be a filmmaker? I wonder who she'd have known. Here's Kurosawa's <laughs> phone number. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, knowing, her, knowing, knowing her, nobody. So it was, it was the right question. She was in the dojo, yes. Right because she was um she was into into the fight, not fighting. She was just a, yeah. a like a kind of a it was a hobbyist thing, hobby yeah. thing for her. But she was supporting the fighters, going to their matches, and buying tickets off them and stuff like that. Which, by the way, is how all fighters and wrestlers basically make a living here in Japan. Is they they have to sell tickets despite mm. how professional or high up they are. Right. Everyone still has to sell tickets. But anyway, I digress. Mm. Good info. Um, Good to know. Yeah, I had been, I had just, I had been teaching English as an ALT and I finally got out of that industry and I'd been in, in banking for a year doing IT support at Bank of America. And, you know, when you're an English teacher, all you ever want to do is get out of English teaching, right? No offense to the teachers yeah. that are watching this, but everyone wants to get out because you don't want to be 50 and stuck teaching English. You just don't. It's, it's just, unfortunately, it's, it's, you know, the the conditions are bad. You know, the way and they is, don't change, do they? they like, don't change. Yeah. And not just that, it's just like there's not real, there's no career path. Mm. Right. 
you go back to your home country after 30 years of teaching English and you, you're kind of stuck. And I always knew that. I knew that I had to get out of teaching English and build up my skills so that if I ever went back, I had something to take back to Australia with me, right? So I'd been in the bank for a year, but it had been hell on earth, absolute hell on earth. It had been, um, you know, it, it was Bank of America, but it was a very Japanese company, super Japanese company, you know, and where people worked overtime and and the bullying there was was horrible, especially for me. I was bullied a lot. And the only reason I didn't stand up for myself is because I was finally out of English teaching. And I finally had this job that paid great. You know, it was more than I'd ever earned in my life. Mm. And I, I was I was somewhat seeing maybe I can connect this to filmmaking somehow. And but I was being bullied severely. Yeah. What type do you mind me asking? Like what type of bullying? What was the nature oh, just, of just, it? Oh, okay, they call it mental, mental harassment. Yeah. Yeah. Just um snide comments on the side, but it wasn't even by a Japanese, it was by a, a foreigner who worked in the team who had the support of all the Japanese, right? And he, he was mm. just just a horrible person. And um, the guy that I replaced actually pulled me aside before I started. He goes, it's going to be like this. Are you ready? And naive me said, yeah, it's okay. I'm good. Don't worry about yeah. me. I'm martial really artist. I'm tough. Yeah, 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 exactly. But it really, I mean, the martial arts helped me only in the fact that I, you know, gummon. Okay, don't don't smash this guy. This is your chance. This is your, yeah. you know, your Because you could have taken your dad's advice and hit back, right? Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? I thought this is right before this whole chance encounter happened. And I thought, ah, I don't need to put up with this. I'm out of here. And yeah. I, so I quit the bank and I went back to teaching English uh, as an ALT. Just, I was only two months into it when this whole wrestling thing started. And I remember sitting there at the, in the teacher's room. And I had an email ready to go because the woman had told me, like, when you send this email to this guy, like, that's it, right? You you go all in, right? There's no part-time here, right? You You have your savings, but, like, this is you're going to be a Japanese young boy, right? You have to dedicate your entire life to this. And that's exactly what happened. And I'm sitting there with the old flip phone going, oh, <laughs> what do I do? Because that was it. Like, it really was. Like, you have to, you know, live, eat, breathe wrestling and basically be poor. Mm. I, I had savings, thankfully, from the bank, which made it a little bit easier. And I just went like, you know what? F it. <laughs> and I just pressed the send button. Mm. And I got a reply back probably five minutes later, you go, no, in, in Japanese, oh, you want to be a wrestler, do you? Okay, come down to the show on this date. And I went down to this show in Shinjuku, and it was run by a guy who used to be in WWE, that's World Wrestling Entertainment, which is the biggest inter- mm. wrestling company in the world. He's Japanese. His name was Tajiri. And he was super famous. And he was famous for being not just amazing, but he used to spit this green mist, which was supposed to be poison. So when you when you get all this poison on your face, you can't see and you go delirious and he would win. Right. <laughs> that was his thing. That was his gimmick. Brilliant. Yeah. It was actually it was so good. Right. <laughs> but the thing was that you would never know, you would never know when and where he was going to use this green mist. Right. To spit in your eyes to win the fight. Yeah. And the reason I tell you that story is because I watched the show and I thought, am I really going to be in this world? This is incredible. This is all I've ever wanted to do. I met the guy who's not Tajiri, by the way, the guy that I'd emailed. I met him and he said to me, oh, and I'd been working out in the gym really hard because, you know, I'd done the kickboxing, but everything I'd ever wanted to do, of course, had always been either the, the action star stuff or the wrestling. So I knew I had to be in shape the whole time. And then this guy says, I'm going to introduce you to Tajiri. I said, okay, sir, thank you. And we take one step behind the curtain, which, by the way, you're not allowed to go back there until you're ready to debut. So when you're a rookie, a rookie is someone who hasn't debuted. It usually takes about a year 
of training to debut here in Japan, you're not allowed behind that curtain ever, right? It's the mystique, the mystique about being able to go behind that curtain. Mm. They let me take one step in, just one, one step in, which the rookies hadn't even done at that time. And, and Tajiri looks at me and he smiles and he's got all this green all over his teeth, right? And uh, it's hilarious. Um, should we just, should I, should I share what it, a picture of what it looks like? Yeah, let's get that for later. We'll, right. uh, we'll, we'll share after, after yeah, later. we'll have it in the, and in it's the hilarious. And he just He looks at me with this wicked smile covered in green. And he just says, you want to be a wrestler. Now, to become a wrestler in Japan is absolutely torturous, torturous, I wouldn't say training, uh, a test where they make you do a thousand squats, you know, hundreds of push-ups. They break you, they make you puke, and then they say, no, you're not good enough. I thought that was coming. And he says to me, do you speak Japanese? You know, I said, yes, I speak Japanese. He goes, come to the dojo on Monday. That was my, that was all I had to do was say that I could speak Japanese. I had already skipped the first hurdle. Wow, right. I've been behind the curtain on the I've day one. I've been behind the curtain from day one. I didn't get to see what was going on behind. but That's I got... why you could catch up those seven years, because you had this accelerated entrance well, point. Never... <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think that was it. But it was more the martial arts background, I think. Yeah. yeah, so I went down to the dojo and I watched them. And then there was an American there, the only American in the group. And he said to me, so are you in? Because he wanted, he wanted another foreigner with him. I said, you know what? yeah i think i'm gonna do this and i just did it jumped in with both feet and it was 10 months of hell brutal brutal training but i never forget i got a call one night in january from tajiri himself who we all idolized and looked up to because he had done it on the biggest of the biggest stages in america you know on like wrestlemania which is the biggest show hundred thousand people watch that he had done it all he called me up he's like uh dion february 28th you okay to debut right and i said um yes sir yes 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 i'll never forget the time place exactly where i was the building that i was in yes i'm ready to go and uh fast forward it's been it's coming up in 11 years Mm. since that date but Mm. why it's connected to being uh, the film work the camera work is because i debuted on february 28th 2013 and the company almost went bankrupt and they changed owners and those owners saved them. But what they couldn't do was they were paying a production company 600,000 yen a month to make their TV shows for them, this wrestling company was, and then put those TV shows on TV. You would think that the TV companies would pay us for content. It was the other way around. We paid them to be on their channel, right? And that's just how you do it here in Japan and wrestling because there's so many companies. So the companies don't actually pay for content. Right, we pay them to be on their on their space. They couldn't afford that anymore, and they said we had a big group meeting. And they go, "Well, we're not going bankrupt. That's the good news. The bad news is we don't have a film crew. We don't know anyone who can do camera work, and that means none of us are going to be on TV anymore. And is there anyone here who can do cameras? I was like, "Uh, uh, yes, (laughs) right, that." And I was in. I was in because at the time when you're a rookie, you get it's it's like Japanese baito. You get. Mm. I think they were paying me 5,000 yen a match, right? And everyone else worked their own bite on the side, which at 5,000 yen is nothing. When you think about 4,000, uh, sorry, uh, four matches a month at yeah. 5,000 yen, it's, it's nothing. You can't live off it. Most right? of the Japanese young kids, they were working in bars or working in izakayas. You know, I had a, a job teaching an English cafe on the side. 
but here they were saying, we need you in the office full time. We're going to give you a salary, which was not much. It was less than an English teacher would make. But I'm suddenly in the wrestling office from nine to five, five days a week, as well as training, doing all the camera work, sitting next to Tajiri, editing all the stuff, how he wanted it to be and learning how to run a Japanese company. Wow. Just, just, and if I hadn't had that camera skill, if I hadn't had the martial arts skill, I would never be there in the beginning. So everything is connected. Yeah. You know, for me, it's, it's, and I, I thank my dad, you know, for making me learn how to use a camera and being a, a Adolf Hitler and, and being basically, hey, repetition, 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 fight, 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 training, 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 no free time, no fun time, martial arts. And now I'm doing everything I love, you know, and it's just, Thing. and just yeah. as and as well that you're the person who because I think it could have been easy for you to say like oh do I really want to as this kind of junior member put my hand up and say like I can do the camera things but to actually put yourself out there as well yeah and considering you know, they were be most, the savior most, of the company most, anyway. yeah pretty much most yeah. they were mostly kids as well yeah and he's this 30 year old who didn't know how to wrestle and they had all <laughs> they're all been wrestling two or three years and you know, yeah. to this day, everybody in the wrestling world calls me Ryan's son. Mm. For whatever reason, even the veterans, I've got a son next to my name, wow. which never happens. It never You're is. Not a kun. You're I'm a, not a kun. Yeah. I'm a or son. A Jan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's that, and so for me, it's always been one or the other. It's been you know, it's been um, martial arts. It's it's filming, but I always knew at the end of the day, I couldn't survive. Of despite having this salary, I couldn't survive later on in life being a wrestler because wrestlers have a shelf life you mm. know your, your body is your life and if you get hurt you know you better have something to fall back on and yeah. it, it always again it always been my thing about you got to have skills you got to keep building your skills don't be content on just having this skill you always got to be trying to get get better or, or get new skills yeah. i'm really big on that you know and, mm. and so that's why i opened um my japan media services yeah. because i knew that the wrestling would always be there i just scaled it back a little bit yeah. Um, because you know, I'd been basically traveling on the road, going all around Japan. I've been to every prefecture in Japan by bus, right? As a wrestler. So there are eight, nine hour trips where by the way, on Japanese pro wrestling buses, it's dead silent the whole trip. You're not allowed to talk. No karaoke. Nothing. No, no uno. Nothing. No one does they sit there and they they sleep. Right. So maybe the, the only time, time they're allowed to, right? Together, not in the dojo, probably uh, bad. Possibly, possibly. <laughs> I mean, after the matches, they usually all just they scattered yeah. and went their own ways. Anyway, uh, certainly us foreigners were never invited to any events that the Japanese were in. That's the same for any anything here. Foreigners that come over for like baseball and stuff, they're always it's just a thing. The foreigners right. do their thing. The Japanese do their thing. Well, we do need to shift gears because I know that you have another meeting to go to. So I want to take it to your current fighting for oh, yeah. people okay. now, fighting and filming. Um, right. So it's still continuing, but you're no longer in the dojo. You're fighting for other people's voices to be heard and to tell different stories. So can you tell me yeah, a little bit about um, your documentary film as well and, and how that connects to right. these themes of Ikigai for you? Right. Yes. Well, the, the purpose of life. Well, you know what? Um, I had always been looking for something that I'm really good at. I tried to make these like kind of, you know, like uh, Yakuza films or, you know, gangster films or suspense films and eh, not really working out. And it was, you know, I I'd, I'd decided to 
scale right back down the wrestling and start my Japan media services full-time. And a lot of that became corporate videos. And um, a lot of corporate videos, a, a lot of the work we get is stuff like um, lots of interviews. Yeah. Um, and lots of what we call like either branded documentaries or, or PR videos. Yeah. Now, branded documentary is basically, it kind of looks like a documentary a little, but it's basically got everything that the company has from their PR people has to be hit the spots. But you kind of make it look like a little bit of doc. And I found that I was actually quite good at this because uh, during COVID, no one could come to Japan. No outside film crews could come to Japan. So I started getting work for the BBC. Mm-hmm. right? And we made a, a couple of short films for the BBC. And I also did a couple of extra off, you know, one-off shoots for them to help them out. And I also did a job for uh, Fukushima Ken, which was the Fukushima Food is Safe campaign. Mm. And that was that was shown to diplomats at the 2021 Olympics. It was supposed to be shown, you know, at stadiums all around, but because there was no people oh, coming, yeah. it just showed it to the diplomats. But so we made this PR film, complete PR film, but as a documentary. And it's it's up on my my Vimeo, my portfolio page there. But they loved it so much that uh, apparently as many as five countries lifted their ban on Fukushima food imports. Right. Oh, thanks, to my, thanks to my yeah. thanks to my video. Um I, I did a really good job at it, actually. You know, not to bash, you know, not to talk highly on myself, but we did we did do a good job of it. Yeah, no, no, call it. During, Say during it like that, it is. Yeah, we did, yes. we did a good job. But because of COVID, right. You know, COVID was bizarre, horrible, horrible times for everybody. But mm-hmm. thanks to COVID, we weren't allowed to bring team our team in, right? It had to be me and an assistant, Max. At the most, three people, if you can, two people. Mm. Right? So I had to quickly learn to be, as they say in like a Japanese, almighty. I had to learn all the jobs. Right. I had to learn how to do lighting. I had to learn how to do sound. And I kind of already knew sound, but I didn't know lighting, that's for sure. I had to learn how to, um, you know, interview people light for that you know, to be the director whilst using the camera you know i had to learn it all because they basically it was like it was banned it was kinchy you couldn't bring your mm-hmm. team in there everyone was freaking out about it. you had to be minimum two meters away and they had to wear masks and everything and and all that you remember those times yeah okay. yeah of course but so i i learned skills. i learned basically every single skill that is needed on the film set i learned how to do it right of course i had to edit it all anyway so i learned on set offset and then I'd heard this horrible story about a single mother whose uh, her husband had uh, done the dirty and run off with another woman and had um, taken all the money out of the bank and left her and her kid high and dry. That's horrible enough as it is. This is a true story. But then the boy, I think he was 17 at the time. Now, I didn't know, didn't know this woman. This is a friend of a friend. We had met once very briefly. And the boy end up getting stage two cancer right and this woman had no way to pay yeah for it and refused to go to the husband refused to have anything to do with him because he had cheated he had taken the money he's gone she was gonna do this on her own and you know and i said well why don't you say you know like what i actually offered my services i said i'll go over there and uh you know i'll do a bit of pro wrestling acting on him let me tell you something, brother, you know, like uh, Hulk Hogan <laughs> or something, you know, like, and, you know, basically help her out. 
no, 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 nothing to do with, please leave him alone. I don't want, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to, I said, well, can you at least go somewhere like to the government agencies or can you go to like check show city hall, ask for help? Nope, nope, nope. I'm going to do this all on my own. I thought that's strange. What a strange kind of pride to have. Like what you've just had this horrible thing happen to you. That's that, that was the initial thing that kicked off. Mm. This is really weird because that would never happen in Australia, right? In Australia, we'd go straight to what we call Centrelink, which would be kind of like uh, what what do you have? What do you call that in the UK? Like the place where you get the doll. Oh, um, like welfare services. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. We'd go straight well, to. Also, don't know the English for this as well. It's like, yeah, I just go to right. the Kayak show. Yeah, exactly. You'd go for straight. So down. Yeah, you'd sign up for whatever benefits. Yeah, you could get. yeah. Give me all you'd... the all the welfare, please. Give yeah, because I've just had this horrible thing. No. And then a, a friend of mine, uh, F.J. Fox, who's a, a producer on my film, told me a story that he had heard. And we both, and I just finished his Fukushima thing. And it was actually, it was in the news that they had released, you know, at the time it was only two countries. It ended up being five, like I said. But, mm-hmm. And I showed him this news piece. I said, look, my my video did this. And he goes, dude, I said, I saw that you're a super talented documentary guy. He said, you should totally do a documentary on this single mother's. I was like, you know what? Maybe I should, <laughs> you know? So it was kind of, it, it ended up being something he said I should say, but we had been talking about it right there yeah. and then about these stories that we had heard. And we had always wanted to work together. Like he had sent me scripts and he said like, you're a talented filmmaker. I want to work with you. Here's some scripts. And it just never worked out. In the end, I mean, he 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 didn't really um have much to, to do with the film itself. Like he's a producer on it. Um, and he was there when I needed, you know, a, a shoulder to, you know, the lean on and say, you were going to do it all by yourself. I yeah, pretty you much, <laughs> that's the kind of person I am kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And I just kept going down the rabbit hole of, first of all, I'd been here at 18 years at the time. It's almost 20 now, but I'm like, no poverty in Japan. No, come on. you got to be serious. It, no, and it's not poor here. And it's like, um, it's a big smoke and mirrors thing, you know, because mm. when you think of poverty, you you think of Asia, you you you'll go somewhere like Thailand or maybe India, and you, it's a different kind of poverty. Like we're a developed nation, but as I say in my film, there are fifteen percent of children here in Japan who, who don't have a meal at nighttime, and I didn't know any of this. I had zero zero uh, comprehension of what it's like to be a single mother, what it's like to be poor in Japan. You know, like all of this was completely new, and I think that's why you know I often get asked. A couple of times I've been asked, okay, you're, you're a Caucasian gaijin. Could you justify yourself? How do you justify yourself being able to make a, a, a documentary about Japanese women? And I say to them, well, you know what? That's often the sign of a good filmmaker who can take a topic that he knows, he or she knows nothing about and turn it into something that makes people think. And it's mm. thought provocative, you know? And I think I've done that. Yeah. So I, I was also wondering about that, thinking that maybe because you're an outsider, that's actually what makes it easier. There is no doubt um, a Japanese director could not have made this film for many reasons, but the biggest reason is, yes, it's the, the taboo, taboo topics, is yeah. even now I'm having so much trouble dealing with Japanese um, streaming companies and TV companies. They just they don't want to touch it because it seems to be too taboo. But also I am not in any kind of hierarchy system. I don't have a senpai. I don't have a kohai. I am me. I'm doing my own thing. You know, I don't have to. I don't have to answer to anybody. Yeah. And then there's the the concept, you know, of of what I always talk about, wa, you mm. know, this harmonious thing and what it means to be Japanese. 
I'm not Japanese. I don't have any idea what. I don't need to be harmonious because look what's happening. You know, kind of thing. You know? Yeah. And you talk to Japanese people and they'll all be very surprised, you know, like um there's this, the concept of the kids' cafeteria, the kodomoshokodo. Mm. People have somewhat heard of it. Yeah. Why do they know about it? Oh, because NHK runs something on on child poverty five years ago and I may have picked up on it. Well, you know, in Tokyo, we have close to probably it's it's somewhere between five to six hundred, you know, just in Tokyo, kids' cafeterias. Right. And the fact that we have these cafeterias is a problem in itself. Why do we have them? Mm. You know, yeah. you know, and it's not just single. These are not just kids of single parents. These are kids where both their parents are stuck in the office until all god time, all night. You know, nine, ten o'clock at night can't come home, right? And the the daycare or the after school care is only till five p.m. So they need somewhere else to go. Yeah, this is inherently a very Japanese thing. You know, we have mm. food banks and stuff in Australia and the UK and stuff, but we don't have these communal gatherings of children. I only found out about these kids' things because I was trying to. I, one of the ladies in my film, her name's Mai, and she's only a young, she's a Buddhist monk. Only young, yeah. she's 20, 28 at the time of the film. And I kept saying to her, Tell me what it's like to be a kawaii so poor. So I feel so sorry for you, single mother. Please tell me all your sad stories, kind of thing. That was my bias in the beginning, right? And she refused to talk about it. Everything was well. The kids' cafeteria. This is and, and I kept saying no, 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 no. No kids' cafeteria. I want to know about your kawaii soul story. No, 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 no. The kids' cafeteria. And so when I got back to the editing room, which is just my office right here, I thought, oh, she didn't give me any good answers. What am I? How am I going to use this girl? You know, I have to. I went all the way to Fukui, seven and a half hours by car, to film yeah. her. And I got this amazing event, which I didn't understand what it was. It was a Kodomo Shokodo event. And I didn't know what it was. I saw these women like desperately yeah. throwing groceries into their bags. And I didn't understand what it was. And it was only then when I sat down and listened to her interview like three times. I was like, oh, my God. Right. And so that's that wasn't in my treatment for the film. That was that was child poverty was not even part of it. And now it's a big part of it. Yeah, and they're directly re related. You know, it's like um, single parent households. Fifty percent of them are are in poverty, and then people say, "Well, what's poverty?" Well, poverty is people earn around two million yen a year, mm. right? Yeah. Then you're in poverty if you earn less. If you if you earn more than one point three million yen per year in Japan, your subsidies are reduced, which yeah. is mental, absolutely mental. One point mm. three million yen is like that's a film budget for a short film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like. And there's, um, you know, with uh, all the tax implications for uh, dependents, if these single mothers have been married previously, you know, they were encouraged to stay be beneath that 1.3 million yen line. So when you, they coached to do so. yeah, and and there's a there's a massive tax benefit. There's a there's a fiscal yeah. reason for your family to do it, but the um the assumption that your family will be there to support you, um is uh it's not always the case right as as many of your stories do so i'm i'm very big on the uh, on the fuck off fund and having like having your own money as a way to have choices um but all the system is set up in a way that people are not encouraged to to do those things and i remember there's a part in the video and a woman was talking about you know how much i think she was one of the women who had this escaped from a domestic violence situation she was talking about how much she was working and how much she was still just couldn't it's like she's not this image of you know welfare 
grabbing to the absolute both their queens yeah right and and just yeah this this idea that the working yeah, poor right. in japan is Here just in, a huge issue it's, it's such a different problem to to like the us where in japan is the fixes are so simple right and i say that because well in the us a lot of times you don't know who the father is in a lot of the cases for whatever reason either that they have they've run off or the mother had it's the, the relationship hasn't worked out and the mother hasn't put his name down on the birth certificate there are multiple reasons and the, i'm i'm not american i can't say why but there are there are many circumstances where the father is unknown mm. in japan it's no it's known 100% of the time because of the koseki his name is there on that family register rain hail or shine his name is there so we know straight away who is the father 80 percent of the fathers don't pay child support here in japan mm. right which is a horrible figure but when i say that then everyone goes well oh, those japanese guys they're so bad well no it's not the case they are but it's not like our western counterparts are angels they're not angels they're paying child support they're probably 20% like Japan, 20% they want to pay child support, the other 80% don't want to, but they are. Why are they? Because the government is making them. Mm. That's all it is. And how does the government make them pay? Well, they have an agency inside the government. In Japan, it's the family court, it's the saiban, right? Mm. And the family court is not part of the government. So when you when you spend your initial 1 million yen, which a lot of mothers can't afford, to go and get that stamp from the saiban to say he has to pay there's no penalties if he doesn't pay because it's not a, it's not it's not part of the government you know um and that that's all that needs to be fixed no teeth no teeth that's all it needs to be fixed it's it's consultation that's all it needs to be fixed it needs to become a government regulated agency they could do that tomorrow if they wanted to right and it it, it needs to and also the, the like you said the tax breaks and and, and the rules about this 1.3 million yen they need to be the loosened mm. and everything would start to improve it's such a simple simple fix i, I just it blows my mind you know where in japan it's, it's i mean in america there's so many problems you know there's a drug epidemic you know there's racial problems and there's all this stuff in japan we don't have any of that the women are here they want to work full-time they want to work nine to five but often they get stuck in these irregular jobs which are you know no benefits yeah nine to nine you know, kind of stuff, and and they they're stuck in this horrible cycle, and mm. and then no sort of um, no, there's no support, there's no backup for like when your child is sick, mm. like what what you do as a single parent, like that the safety nets are uh, really um, yeah, and you know, and everyone praises yeah. everyone praises Abe for his womenomics, but what people don't understand is that he took a lot of the safety nets that were set up and put them towards other areas. Right, so he was the one, and his predecessor actually were ones who kind of reduced the social safe, social safety net for mothers. Mm. You know, and I, I, I don't know enough about it because I'm not a political analyst, but I, I kind of have a feeling that this whole what was it, women or mixed thing? Yeah, yeah. I have a, a smoke screen for all that. Ah, so it was. Uh, we're going to distract over here, but actually, we're yeah. we're taking right, away right. They, uh, the they, welfare yeah. state in the background. Yeah, yeah. 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 Much. Yes. Um, there are the books, and I I read one essay on this kind of stuff. So, yeah. Um, well, it's a really powerful film, and I know that you're working to um get distribution rights and and things going on to get it into the eyeballs of more people and the consciousness of more people. Right. So, 
we're really wishing you uh, the best of luck with that. But unfortunately, at the moment, what people, what can people do to support you, to support the, um, um, the content? Well, that what people can do is, I because I am negotiating to get it into cinemas next year, I'm spending 2023 using the time to put it into film festivals, but also to do like educational sessions, like where I go to companies and I do in-house screenings and have Q&A sessions afterwards. We've done some with, um, you know, with Bank of America, which was, that was a great moment for me to go back into that place hey. after, after a year of, of mental torture to go back in there with my head raised high saying, look at me now. That Amazing. was, that was great. And then we do other institutions you know, that we've done. We've done about six or seven now. Universities. I've been to two universities here. Uh, mm. Suda Jupiter, which was the uh, first and probably most prestigious female school. So the way that people can support you is to, yeah, if they have an organization, yeah. I know lots of diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives are looking for, you know, different ways to talk about lived experiences of employees and looking at the numbers. I'm sure there's many people who are have single mothers, single right. parents within their, right. within so their we, we need to staff. We need to educate people. And mm -hmm. how do we do that? We educate in school and also in the, in the offices. So if, if there's anybody who would like to, you know, it's not free, unfortunately, because, um, you know, I'm dedicating my time. And I also, I bring mothers in from the film. Oh, so you can have like a talk show. I hope we have a talk afterwards. show afterwards where oh, I bring wow. mothers and then I, whatever money I get, I, I give that to them. Yeah. And that's a great way for them to build their public speaking skills. Right, and also, skills you know, again. And also to get paid because they're all struggling. So yeah. I do that. Um, And yeah, if there's any way you'd like to support. I'm also looking for anyone who'd like to, put their logo in the film. And what that means is that when we go to cinema cinemas next year, or we go on a streaming platform next year, like your logo will be there forever. Right. You can be, you, know? you can sponsor, sponsor you the film. Sponsor so all of those packages. There yeah. is a, there's also a section where it's a thank you section where you can put your name in there if you wish. And, um, you know, there's so many ways that you can help you know, sponsor the film. We do need it. We need it a lot because it's so hard to push this topic. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we'll have all of your links will be in the show notes so people can check those out. Um, and maybe if they have a whole other new and different way, they could also, I think, uh, it, around's very welcome for knocking on any doors. So, right. yes. yeah. And, and again, if I can just push, if you need videos in your office, if you need someone to shoot for you, I'm your man. I can, I can do it all. So yes, fighting and filming. So is there anything that we haven't talked about that you wanted to bring into the space today? No, I just, I'd like to just, again, push the film out there and you know if it's if, if if you would like to get on board in any way to help out um if you'd like to help out on the ground by volunteering for some of the single mother groups that are in the film the the kodomo shokodo kids cafeteria groups they're always looking for volunteer members the heartful family are, are a great organization that would love to have volunteers come down um you can contact me uh directly and I'll, i can set you up and if you want to direct uh sponsor the film in any way we'd be more than happy we we need all the help we can get Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. If you have like a final message about Ikigai and the lessons that you've learned through your life for the listeners of Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai, what would it be? Well, you know, it's important that you have to have a purpose in your life, no matter how big or small, you have to have something. Personally speaking, I don't want to be the guy that is, you know, people, if I die in Japan, they're picking my bones up from with chopsticks and it, it's all been for nothing. I have to have, it's, it's a personal thing. Not everyone's the same, but you have to find some purpose, mm -hmm. find some reason to, to be here because we're not here for long. You blink and we're gone, you know? And, and so 
find a purpose, build your skills, um, you know, just make the most of everything. I love that. That's that's that's, that's all I can say. It's uh, you know, it's it's super important. Just make the most of life. Right. That's a wonderful message to finish on. So thank you so much for sharing your story. It has so many ups and downs and exciting occurrences and unexpected uh, moments of woo-woo with tarot cards and green mist. I can't wait to see the picture of Tajiri, Tajiri-san and for just yeah, continuing to use those skills that you have, changing them in different ways to support people who don't have voices. Your work is really appreciated and really important. So thank you. And thank you for being with us thank today. You. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening today. I really hope that you found something you could take away from the episode to help you find your own Ikigai and integrate it into your daily life. And I'd love to hear exactly what resonated with you. So pop over to see me on LinkedIn or on my Facebook page. You can find the links in the show notes below. And let me know what you thought was the most important takeaway from the podcast today. And sharing is caring. So feel free to share this episode with one of your friends who you think could benefit from hearing about living a life of purpose. Looking forward to see you on the next episode of Ikigai with Jennifer Shinkai.